Welcome to Moving Medicine, a podcast by the American Medical Association. Today's episode is part two of our discussion on the state of prior authorization in healthcare and how the AMA is working to fix it. If you missed part one, I encourage you to go back and give it a listen. AMA President Dr. Jack Resnick Jr. and guests Heather McComas, AMA Director of Administrative Simplification Initiatives, and Emily Carroll, Senior Legislative Attorney with the AMA Advocacy Resource Center, continue their conversation about developments in prior authorization and specifically updates from CMS related to Medicare Advantage. Here's Dr. Resnick. The Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, CMS, announced that it is taking important steps towards right-sizing the prior auth process imposed by Medicare Advantage plans on medical services and procedures. We have at the AMA really applauded CMS Administrator Brooks LaSure for leading the effort to include provisions in this final rule to streamline prior auth requirements, to improve clinical validity of coverage criteria, and to increase transparency of health plans prior auth process. Medicare Advantage enrollees will benefit from these important new protections, which is gonna help reduce disruptions to their care and allow physicians to get back to what we came into medicine for in the first place, treating patients. Additionally, just last year, the US House of Representatives passed in an overwhelming bipartisan way, the Improving Seniors Access to Timely Care Act, That would have reformed prior auth nationally in the Medicare Advantage program as well. Unfortunately, it didn't pass in the Senate yet, but new proposed federal regulations address a lot of the same issues covered by the bill. And we're gonna talk more about those regulations. It's not just at the federal level, we're seeing change happen in states as well. Heather, um, we've had some pretty big, um, I had several meetings with the CMS administrator and her team. They have been just, uh, it's been a sea change. They've been very receptive to hearing from us and our patients about um, about how big of a problem this is. And I, I really sort of feel heard and seen and our patients being heard and seen in this rule. Can you tell us a little bit more about a couple of the things that are in this uh, proposed rule? Yeah, sure. And first of all, I will just echo the sentiment of feeling heard um, because, you know, all of us have been advocating for such a long time in this issue. And then to finally hear some of the concerns that we brought forward addressed in rulemaking has been really exciting. So the rule that was finalized um, is the uh, 2024 Part C, which is Medicare Advantage and Part D um, rule. And the, the prior authorization piece of that rule just um, addresses Medicare Advantage, but some really exciting things in there. And I think the first exciting thing about this rule is in the first couple characters of the long title of the rule, it's CY or calendar year, uh, contract year 2024. So these provisions go into effect at the beginning of 2024. And throughout the rule, CMS notes that health plans and their comments said, oh, we need more time, whatever. But the government's stuck with their guns and they are making these changes go into effect beginning of 2024. So relief, at least for Medicare Advantage, is, is on the way. So I think that's that's exciting. Um, and then particularly on the issue of feeling heard, um, we see in this final rule, CMS addressing prior authorization in a very holistic fashion. In recent years, the only thing that health plans, whether they are commercial or um government plans, all they've really wanted to talk about in terms of improving prior authorization has been automation, 
and making things electronic. And again, we are you know 100% in favor of automating things and getting rid of the fax machine and phone calls, but that is not the silver bullet. I'm sure everyone in the audience realizes that is not going to magically fix everything about this process. And um, one of my uh, very smart colleagues in the DC office, Matt Reed, came up with this um, phrase last year, but I think it, it's really, I'd like to use it because it's so um, perfect. He said, you know, if the underlying clinical criteria are not sound, all you're going to accomplish with electronic prior authorization is get to an inappropriate no faster. And I totally agree with that. It's like if you have an apple and you shine it, but the core is rotten, it's still a rotten apple, right? So it's really important that the clinical foundation of prior authorization programs is appropriate. And that is exactly what CMS is going after in this final rule. Um, to your point, they are very much responding to those very upsetting results from the Office of Inspector General HHS report that was released last year that looked at Medicare Advantage prior authorization um, issues and found that in many cases, Medicare Advantage patients are not getting services that they would have gotten if they were covered by regular fee-for-service Medicare. And that should not be the case, but that's what's happening right now because Medicare Advantage plans are using their internal proprietary criteria, which are obviously not appropriate because they're not aligning with fee-for-service Medicare. So in this rule, um, CMS is saying to the MA plans, you need to follow Medicare statute regulation, local coverage determinations, national coverage determinations in your prior authorization programs. And if there are not, sufficient um, criteria available from Medicare, you can develop your own proprietary internal criteria, but they have to be based on well-used treatment guidelines, on clinical literature, and you got to make that information public. So I think that's really important. It's putting a light on all this, and you know, you're gonna they're going to be showing us what clinical criteria that they are using in their prior authorization programs. And they're also requiring a level of oversight on making these changes. Each MA plan is now going to have to have a utilization management committee that is going to make sure that these changes are occurring and review every year and make sure that the clinical criteria are aligning with Medicare when um, there are existing Medicare guidelines. Um, and uh, it's also an, an important to note that um, that you know, the rule says that um, the plans cannot use prior authorization to delay or discourage care. It's really only just to be used to confirm um, a clinical diagnosis or to ensure that a service is medically necessary. Um, and then um, one last thing, this was actually in the behavioral health part of the rule, um, but the, the rule says that an emergency medical condition can be physical or mental. And as such, behavioral health services furnished as emergency service cannot be subject to prior authorization. And I'm sure that's obvious to all of us, but I think it's really important to have it in writing. Basically, mental health emergencies do not are not allowed to have prior authorization. I think that's really important that the rule address that. And then also um, the, some of the movement in the states in this area, the rule also very much um, got into the area of continuity care when patients are switching between plans. And Dr. Resnick, I know you brought this up over and over again, what a challenge it is. You know, a patient is stabilized on treatment and all of a sudden they change plans and they need another prior authorization. And not only is that a huge hassle for the practice, but it disrupts the patient's treatment and their, their medical condition might worsen. Um, so the rule is going to require that MA plans have at least a 90-day transition period when patients transition between plans. And during that transition period, the plan cannot 
require new prior authorization and the ongoing course of treatment. It also requires that the duration of a prior authorization approval be for the length of treatment, which is really important. That gets at the repetitive nature of prior authorization that Emily was highlighting. And then finally, and this gets to the point that um, you just made about, um, you know, kind of retroactive denials and, you know, things, um, you get a prior authorization and then suddenly it gets, uh, the claim gets denied at the end of the day. The, the rule says that um, if a MA organization approves a prior authorization, they can't then deny the claim later for medical necessity reasons. So that's really important. We know that's a huge issue. At the end of the day, um, if the claim's denied, that puts the practice at huge financial risk. So a whole a lot of really great things in this rule that just came out. So we're really excited to see it go into effect at the beginning of 2024. Yeah, I, I just love some of this content. This, I think as physicians, we're used to getting these prior offs for procedures that at the bottom say this is not a guarantee of payment. And uh, I mean, I get it if the patient is no longer on the plan, uh, but this notion that, that you then go and do the, the procedure and find out later that they've withdrawn the prior off is ridiculous. So I'm glad uh, CMS is addressing that. And I love it that the rule is barring MA plans from just making up their own proprietary criteria for prior auth out of whole cloth. And if there's a national coverage determination or a local coverage determination in fee-for-service Medicare that says something is covered with certain criteria, then MA plans have to follow the same thing. And if there isn't one that they actually have to use big national specialty society um, criteria or other similar things, and, and they can't just make this stuff up. And you mentioned automation. Um, you know, at AMA, we have been very supportive of this should be easier to file prior off. We shouldn't be handwriting these and faxing them. We shouldn't be facing every single insurer creating their own proprietary portal with so that every physician has 40 more passwords. This needs to be built into <laughs> our daily work, but but automation alone is not enough. And sometimes I even hear health plans sort of snickering that, yeah, if we automate this, then it'll be easier to have prior off on more things. And so when you just start spinning on the hamster wheel faster and faster, so even using AI, and I have seen some early interesting uses of AI to help um, create sort of finding in the note what the health plan needs and feeding it to them. But again, we, we just have to reduce the number of things that are, that are subject to this as well. Curated from more than 3,000 major newspapers, magazines, and journals, the AMA Morning Rounds newsletter delivers the top stories in healthcare right to your inbox Monday through Friday. Subscribe today and check out all the AMA's free newsletters at ama-assn.org slash myinbox. That's ama-assn.org slash myinbox. Um, any other things, uh, Heather, besides what's in this rule uh, in terms of regulatory stuff happening or, or being considered? Um, yeah, sure. So um, just to kind of draw the line. So that rule is final. It's going into effect. Um, again, the government is taking a holistic approach to prior authorization. So they actually um, released another proposed rule late last year. The rule I'm talking about now is the CMS prior authorization and interoperability rule. This is just proposed at this point. I want to make that clear. This is not final. Uh, but a lot of provisions in that rule also address prior authorization. A lot, it leans a little bit more definitely in the technology bent of the rule. Um, it would require the impacted plans 
um, to require an electronic prior authorization process that integrates with physicians' electronic health records, which is a really great thing. Um, and one interesting thing about this rule that makes it different from the one that we just talked about, the scope is a little bit larger in terms of the impacted plan. So it does include Medicare Advantage, which is something we actually advocated for. There was a previous iteration of this rule that came out late 2020 that did not include Medicare Advantage, so we were very happy to see that change. But it also includes Medicaid plans, Medicaid managed care, CHIP, and CHIP managed care, and then qualified health plans under the federally facilitated um, health care exchanges. So kind of a bigger scope for this rule. And so these rule, these plans beginning January 1st of 2026, or that's at least the proposal, will have to offer this new application programming interface technology that would again connect the health plan to the clinician's EHR. And it would basically be end-to-end -end automation of the prior authorization process. So it really kind of some cool stuff if this stuff all works the way that we all hope it does. So as the physician starts to order a service in their electronic health records, it will be hitting this, this API and will say, Dr. Resnick, you need prior auth for this service. And then should you choose to proceed, it will tell you exactly what documentation you need to submit for that service to the plan. That's very helpful bringing this welcome transparency to this process. It's not like you have to call the plan and say, does this require prior authorization? So it's happening right there in your workflow, which is great. And then the final piece is, um, you know, the information is pulled from the EHR, exchanged um, with the health plan, the health plan comes back with a, a decision. So um, again, we overall generally think this is very promising. Again, getting the process within EHR workflow versus those proprietary portals is a big step forward. Um, we do think that there needs to be a fair amount of testing done before this all goes live. We think it's a good thing. Um, the one kind of negative aspect of this technology side of the proposed rule is the proposal regarding a new MIPS program promoting interoperability measure that would measure, I see Dr. Resnick smiling, um, it would add um, a measure regarding physicians' use of this electronic prior auth API technology. And we came out very strongly against this proposal and our comments, I'm sure many of the other medical organizations listening today did too. Um, we think that, you know, it, it, it's kind of very counterintuitive. We're trying to reduce burden here for physicians and you're adding a MIPS requirement that requires, you know, physician practice to be tracking how much they're using this API or not using the API. I mean, it just, it's a real kind of reporting nightmare. So we're very much hoping that does not go forward. Um, and we firmly believe that if this technology is really all it's cracked up to be, physicians will really want to use it. It will sell itself. It, there doesn't need to be this stick of a, a MIPS measure. Um, so also in this rule, it's kind of interesting. There, there's a technology side, but there are also some more policy-oriented proposals. Um, the rule does address um, the requirements for processing time for both urgent and regular prior authorizations. It's saying that urgent prior authorization should be completed within 72 hours and regular prior authorizations within seven days. Um, we are, you know, directionally um, supportive of the fact that CMS is like trying to shorten the timelines. However, we have problems with those particular numbers. I think any of us who have ever suffered from an urgent healthcare problem 
know that 72 hours is way too long to get a prior authorization approved. My goodness. So we are urging CMS to reduce that timeline to 24 hours, which aligns with our policy. And then for regular prior authorizations, we're saying that those should be completed within 48 hours. And we think that this piggybacks nicely with the new technology requirements being proposed, because again, if this is all being automated, there's no reason that a regular prior authorization shouldn't be able to be completed within 48 hours. That's the whole kind of promise of the technology, right? Um, another interesting thing in this role, and we think it's really important, and it gets again back to something that Emily was mentioning, it's going to require the impacted plans to publicly report statistics about their prior authorization programs, things like approval rates, denial rates, overturns on appeal, and their average processing times. And we think this is really important. I think that, um, you know, watch behavior makes people, um, you know, want to do things better. And so we're really glad to see CMS proposing this. Um, we are urging CMS to require plans to start implementing this transparency piece of the rule earlier than 2026. We think it should go into effect immediately so that when the technology piece is in effect, we can hopefully see an improvement and a change. We think that benchmarking is really important. So hopefully when they finalize the rule, they will make the, the data available sooner. Um, and then also the rule would require plans to provide a specific reason for a denial, denial regardless of what method is being used to process the prior authorization. So again, um, you know, another important piece of prior authorization regulation um, uncertain you know exactly how it's going to look in its final form or when it's going to get finalized but um it's an important piece of the the puzzle here wait you mean doesn't meet criteria is not a good enough reason i uh yes it would be lovely to have some specific that, that tells you exactly what to do come on <laughs> there was also a very um I, I think very important um, sign on letter with all the national medical specialty societies and state medical associations on that um, the the part C um, rule and I, basically it kind of outlined the parts of the prior authorization proposals that we supported and um, CMS pretty much finalized them as written they added a little bit of clarification but they did not um, scale things back despite um, some belly aching the part of health plans. So we were really excited to see the provisions go through uh, pretty much as they had been initially proposed. The hours should actually include weekend hours and 48 hours shouldn't be just business days. Uh, pa patients' lives and their suffering from their diseases do happen on nights and weekends as well. So um, important point. Uh, we've had a couple of folks asking us about sort of the degree to which this may eventually impact the commercial non-Medicare Advantage market, um, especially employer-sponsored plans and ACA plans. And our consensus document that we put out with the national health plans a few years ago, which unfortunately didn't lead uh, to them following through on any of their promises to do some of this work on their own, which is why we've been uh, seeking legislation and regulatory uh, change. There were some headlines where a couple of plans basically announced that they were going to voluntarily make some changes all of a sudden. I think they're probably responding to some of this momentum in legislatures, and I certainly would welcome this. I said from the beginning of that consensus document that I would go out on stage and hold hands with any plan and congratulate them for progress on this, and I unfortunately haven't had the opportunity to do that yet because they haven't done the work to, to create that opportunity, but uh, but I have to admit some skepticism about that announcement a couple of weeks ago. Emily, you probably know more about this than I do. Can you tell us about the developments that that led to these news releases? 
Yeah, absolutely. And um, I don't know that I do more, know more than you on this one because I think the details are still um, a little bit foggy. But the United Healthcare uh, or United Healthcare uh, announced it was planning to make some changes to its prior authorization program, both um, by significantly cutting the prior authorization requirements and also implementing a national gold carding program. Um, certainly, as you said, good news, and I, and I think to quote you, we are cautiously optimistic um, that these changes will actually be meaningful. But at this point, we're kind of still awaiting the details, and I think it'll be important um, once we get those details to really dive into those changes and, and certainly monitor the implementation of those changes. But I'll say on its face, that is really exactly the sort of voluntary action we were hoping to see when that consensus statement between the insured trade associations, the AMA, MGMA, AHA, and the pharmacists um, was done a number of years ago. And um, we certainly hope that United Healthcare is not the only commercial payer that sort of starts moving in this direction and looks to reduce the volume of prior authorization in the future based on those consensus uh, principles that were drafted so long ago. So um, like I said, I think cautiously optimistic and hopeful that if it is meaningful changes, um, that other plans sort of follow suit. We'll remain cautiously optimistic and hopeful. Um, either one of you want to jump in and say anything about sort of our grassroots campaign, uh, fixed prior auth, and any additional resources that we have for either physicians or, or patients who are in our audience? Yeah, sure. We have a whole grassroots um, fixed prior auth uh, reform campaign, uh, fixedprioroth.org, and it has various tracks to it. Some are uh, oriented more towards patients, others towards physicians. We actually added an employer-facing track uh, fairly recently because, again, we think that's an important target of our advocacy messaging and trying to make the point to employers that you know, prior authorization really might not be saving them money, might be hurting their employees. So um, all the resources that we've been talking about today, um, the survey results are on the web, are on this website. Um, there are um, multiple physician um, videos and Dr. Resnick's featured in some of them. And so I encourage you to go take a look at that um, as well as patient videos. And then I think a really impactful part of this website is the story gallery and um, kind of, again, Dr. Resnick had mentioned this before, there are stories from physicians and patients and healthcare professionals about you know, how they've seen prior authorization impact care. And I know um, that these can be very helpful in advocacy work. And I know, Emily, you've seen that be very helpful at the, the state legislature level and um, also you know, helping with the, the work that's done in the states, which is also featured on the website as well. Yeah, just to echo that, I think um, the story collection page is, is critical. Um, you can organize it actually by state. Um, so you can pull stories from your specific state and use them in testimony, which I do regularly, um, and, and in other resources as you as you lobby your state legislatures. Um, I'll also mention there's a couple or a number of our state um, advocacy resources on that page or on that website as well, including our model legislation. Um, and our uh, state prior authorization law chart so you can see what's happening in the states and what has been enacted and try and get some similar reforms enacted in your state. I just uh, really want to emphasize how important this website has been. It's been a consistent way to sort of communicate with the public and actually receive these stories, which we use all the time. And so that's useful. I would say 
you know, both your state policymakers and your members of Congress and your senator, making sure that you share your stories with them so that they continue to, to hear about and prioritize this would be important. We got one question about the CMS rule and whether saying it sounds like it relates to drugs, does it also apply to surgery? And actually, um, just for clarification, it's it really deeply applies to procedures and tests. And one of our one of the bits of feedback we've given from CMS is we want more of it to apply to drugs, uh, just to make sure that we're covering both of those. But um, thus far, it's it's even primarily focused on on procedures and tests. Medicine doesn't stand still, and neither do we. AMA members don't just keep up with medicine; they shape its future. Help move medicine. Join the movement. Visit ama-assn.org slash movingmedicine. I want to turn to, can we require uh, health plans to actually be more transparent about the cost of different alternatives, especially if they're rejecting one thing, what is the cost? I would say, and, and, and when I think about cost, I both think about what's the patient exposure in terms of copay and what's the cost to the health plan if I'm going to try to be a good steward of resources. But given the incredible opacity of that whole system and the PBMs and the health plans, um, we almost know nothing. It used, to, it used to be fairly predictable that the generic would be the cheapest alternative. That's not even predictable anymore. Any, Heather, any thoughts about progress on actually transparency around pricing? Yeah, sure. So um, I, I realize this is getting a little confusing talking about the various federal rules and what's been done, what hasn't been done yet. But the Part C and Part D rule indicated there was Part Two to come um, because in the proposed version of that rule, they talked about requiring Part D prescription drug plans to support a standard uh, transaction for real-time prescription benefit information. And this is really important um, because Dr. Rosen, as you indicated, you just have no idea. It's like you're prescribing blind in terms of what is going to be covered and what the patient is going to have to pay. And I know you've talked before about, which is just a horrifying thought of you, you know, when finding a moment to talk to a pharmacist who will run through dummy claims to help you try to figure out what's covered. That is, that is a huge waste of time for everybody. Um, so the idea is that this transaction would enable the physician while they are e-prescribing to ping the PBM and it would come back and tell you if prior auth was required for this drug. It would tell you um, what the expected amount the patient is gonna pay for that drug at the pharmacy counter. So the patient pay, which is really important as you have a conversation with the patient about whether or not they can afford the medication. And it also would indicate um, you know, the plans preferred alternatives, you know, in the same class and, you know, clinically equivalent that they prefer, as you indicated, because of their, you know, arrangements with the pharmaceutical companies. And that way you would have a much better insight into the coverage. And um, so there is going to be further rulemaking um, that will hopefully require this to go in effect. I think the proposal was that Part D plans would have to support this technology beginning January of 2025. Again, that hasn't been finalized yet. Um, and then the hope is um, that, you know, they would offer it across their books of business, not just for Part D plans. But again, that is really important. It just, um, it's such a, a time suck for, um, for physicians and for um, pharmacists and for patients. And we know, as you described earlier, it's a huge factor in treatment abandonment. You know, once a patient gets to the pharmacy counter and they can't pick up their medication because 
there was a, there's a cost issue or there's an unmet prior authorization need, they might never come back. And that's just bad for everybody. Somebody who in their community, they kind of got together with docs and medical societies and payers and hospitals and, and the Department of Insurance and agreed on some prior auth reductions, but then the PBMs blocked it. And very hard to know in these situations, there's a lot of sort of pass the blame, I think that goes on with health plans and PBMs as we even find this personally, I run into it all the time at the individual patient level, you sort of call the PBM and they say, no, this denial is, you have to appeal to the health plan and you call the health plan and they say, no, 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 it's a PBM issue. Um, thoughts about just the role of uh, broader regulation that includes PBMs, uh, how to use state insurance commissioners when this goes poorly, um, sort of things beyond some of the basic model state legislation that we've looked at at the state level, Emily. Yeah, uh, it's a great question. And I think, you know, we can't underestimate the role of PBMs in this problem um, and other access issues. Uh, I think, you know, our legislation and a lot of the bills um, that we're seeing in the states would apply not only to health insurers, but to the PBM uh, utilization management practices as well. So I think that's a really critical component of, of um, state legislation is pulling the PBMs into these. Um, into these reforms as well. Um, health and or insurance commissioners um, at the state level are a really important resource. I think um, historically insurance commissioners have maybe generally preferred outreach from patients on some of these issues, um, but I think there's a growing interest from those departments to hear from physicians on behalf of patients. At least most of the departments I've talked to um, in the last couple of years are, are really open to that kind of um, complaint and, and discussion. So I really encourage um, patients and physicians um, on behalf of their patients to have outreach to the departments. They have a lot of enforcement tools at their discretion that they can use. And they also have a lot of tools that can sort of look at systematic issues um, in the state and make sure there is um, compliance with state laws that exist and that they're looking at issues maybe where there isn't state law yet, but um, raising the alarms in some of those bad payer and PBM practices. We got a question about uh, how, whether we have statistics available about how prior auth adds to health inequity. And I, I can say, I'm gonna ask you guys if, if you know of any studies, but I, at which I don't. But my own experience is that this, like many other things in healthcare, falls hardest on historically marginalized communities um, who don't have the necessarily the time and resources to fight these long fights uh, to get their medications and some of the practices that also um, take care of those historically marginalized and minoritized communities are also some of the most overwhelmed practices in terms of being able to have the resources to hire staff to work on this. And so that's certainly been, been my experience. I don't know, and we're about out of time, but Heather and Emily, if if you've seen anything else on sort of the intersection of this with, with health equity issues. I think that's something we would love to have more concrete data on. I totally agree um, that, you know, certainly um, it, it, the impact on those communities is ex exacerbated. Um, and I, I think certainly, particularly you talk about patients with chronic conditions too, or that are disabled, there's certainly a disproportionate impact there. Um, but, you know, I know all the time, um, you know, with my colleagues who share, you know, insurance horror stories, and we always say to each other, like, 
you know, we understand this stuff and we are having such a hard time trying to, you know, get this prioritization approved or help a family member. What is it like for someone who doesn't know the intricacies of, you know, health insurance um, design? And so, yeah, it's really a huge challenge. And it's something I think we hope very much to hope to explore in our, in our further research because um, it's an important thing to highlight in all of this. I want to start by thanking Emily and Heather for joining us. Uh, you know, in my role as AMA president, I get to see behind the curtain just the incredible number of hidden gems on our advocacy team and our staff uh, who do work that affects millions of patients, thousands of doctors every day, but, but who all those folks who benefit don't get to see. And so you have had a chance today to see a couple of those hidden gems in our organization. And, and um, I'm glad you have had that opportunity because we're lucky to have them. Thank you for your engagement on prior off, your involvement on these issues. It's so important. Physicians and patients working on this really make the difference. And I'm feeling the momentum on prior off. Take care. Don't miss an episode. Be sure to subscribe to Moving Medicine wherever you get your podcasts.